Hello, my name is Diane Desierto from the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame, and my lecture today is on economic, social, and cultural rights in international investment law. The investment treaty system spans a very dense and atomized network of thousands of bilateral and regional international investment treaties. While a few of these treaties are negotiated within the context of broader interstate trade negotiations, for the most part, states have concluded many of the current investment treaties on a heavily bilateral basis, defining their respective investment treaty programs according to their respective foreign policy agendas, economic systems, and political ideologies. Long before the controversial collapse of multilateral negotiations in 1997 over the proposed multilateral agreement on investment, states had already been concluding bilateral investment treaties, beginning with the very first bilateral investment treaty concluded by Germany and Pakistan in 1959 and which entered into force in 1962. The progressive march of investment treaty texts, therefore, and their underlying bargaining histories in this bilateral context, heavily bilateral context, gives evidence of the ideological shifts that accompanied the evolving global economic order, from the post-colonial emergence of new capital-importing states and the initial dominance of capital-exporting states in the North-South treaty negotiations, to the more recent rise these days of emerging market players in developing countries as new capital exporters in more complex South-South and South-North configurations. Scholars describe this as several generations of bilateral investment treaties reflecting numerous considerations. In the initial wave in the first generation of bilateral investment treaties, concerns were about primarily investment protection as a result of the legal insecurity resulting from allegedly post-colonial disagreements on the customary international minimum standard for the protection of foreign property and the payment of full, prompt, adequate, and effective compensation in the case of expropriation um, of foreign property. The next wave of bilateral investment treaties, what is often called the second generation, now reflects the more predominant form among thousands of bilateral investment treaties today. They are often based on a structure of uniform objectives, structures, and standard clauses that do also provide for substantive investment protection standards in a very particularized form of dispute settlement called investor-state arbitration. This second generation of bilateral investment treaties instantiated an increasingly comprehensive legal and judicial protection of foreign investments out of the recognition from the political economy uh, school of thought that foreign direct investment-led industrialization tended to promote more competitive industries, and thus there was some necessity to guarantee this degree and nature of investment protection. But it is in the third generation and the fourth generation of bilateral investment treaties and regional investment treaties where we are today in the international system, where there is the crystal controversy over the rebalancing of both the private interest and the public interest that is implicated in foreign investment activities. 
clarifying what the rights and duties of states are to regulate and protect public interests. This is why, in today's parlance, investment policy making, whether in reform efforts at the UN, um, UN Conference on Trade and Development or the UN Conference um, negotiations on reforms to investor state arbitration, focus on this notion of rebalancing to ensure states' right to regulate, and particularly to preserve their right to regulate to defend public policy objectives such as those that are particularly encapsulated by human rights, and especially, as I would argue in this lecture, economic, social, cultural rights. So with that understanding, uh, there are certain things to examine when we look at economic, social, cultural rights from the prism of state public policymaking in international investment treaties. In the first place, because regular, regulatory freedom in international investment agreements is implicated insofar as how states can comply with their human rights obligations to their populations, there's tremendous interest in the very diversity and the proliferation of the design of international investment agreements as a source of binding international law and obligation. Given this diversity, it is impossible to pre-identify each individual treaty provision that triggers the issue of the state's regulatory freedom to pursue public interest or human rights concerns. But what is clear thus far in the range of disputes that states have been facing in investor-state arbitration is that host states' defenses, the defenses of host states to foreign investment, against alleged liability to foreign investors are primarily anchored on the need to ensure their regulatory freedom, to ensure their own compliance as states with fundamental human rights and yet this has not made tremendous headway still in investment arbitral jurisprudence, which is still structured towards a very heavily um, investor protection, uh, investment protection model as opposed to a rebalancing model. Usually, this is due to the lack of the development of the argument of the host state concerned, although in recent disputes before investment arbitral tribunals, Increasingly, economic, social, cultural rights have been argued by states, particularly in disputes involving water concessions, disputes involving essential services and utilities. This has not, however, become the primary reason on which arbitral tribunals have resolved uh, a dispute, including human rights, as part of the applicable law. It's also come up in the case of amicus submissions or the submissions that are made by non-disputing parties to existing bilateral uh, investor-state arbitration disputes. And yet, the difficulty here is that even with non-disputing parties being able to submit amicus submissions, because non-disputing parties do not have access to the full records of a case, they could not speak with direct and depth position to the legal and factual issues of an investment arbitration. This is why in the famous case of Suez versus Argentina, for example, a 30-page amicus submission that generally discussed the significance of the rights to water and to health in that arbitration dispute was simply taken by the arbitral tribunal as an informative brief but not necessarily a determinative or a decisive um, submission for purposes of resolving the dispute. The tribunal in Suez versus Argentina said, 
and simply observed that Argentina is subject to both international obligations, human rights obligations, and its investment treaty obligations, and must respect both of them equally. And they said in this particular case that in these the circumstances of these cases, Argentina's human rights obligations and its investment treaty obligations are not inconsistent, contradictory, or mutually exclusive. And yet, from Suez v. Argentina to the present day, or in the present state of investment arbitral jurisprudence, arbitral tribunals have not elaborated on how economic, social, cultural rights in particular are indeed not inconsistent contradictory, or mutually exclusive. My task in this lecture is to give that map to show why economic, social, cultural rights are deeply implicated in the fundamental obligations of host states to foreign investment when they commit to public policy making through the channels of foreign direct investment regulation. It is important to understand that international investment treaties reflect the mutual decision of its states' parties to bind themselves to pre-commitments. This is a strategy which helps the problem of enforcing government promises during the inevitable intervening time between a government promise and its actual performance. As explained by other scholars, international investment agreements resolve these problems by making the government promise enforceable through international arbitration. The treaty regime makes the government's commitments more credible because it removes the adjudication of disputes from the government's hands and raises the possibility of externally imposed sanctions down the road. This is what, in turn, makes performance more likely. Thus, the substantive standards of protection in an international investment treaty, such as minimum standards of treatment, fair and equitable treatment, or expropriation clauses, umbrella clauses, stabilization clauses, among others, they operate to pre-commit states against unforeseeable or supposedly unreasonable regulatory changes. Under that theory, the investment agreement ultimately guarantees a certain level of regulatory predictability to the states' parties and the investor nationals of these states' parties, who ultimately are the third-party beneficiaries of an investment treaty. Regulatory predictability is indeed economically significant to the ultimate investment decision, precisely because the regulatory regime of a state, of a host state to investment, can indeed affect positively or negatively the project return and risk of an investment, the asset value of the investment, the operating costs of an investment, the, un the effect of uncertainty about future standards and property rights could require investors to demand a higher rate of return to invest in any particular country. So to this extent, that when an investment treaty does contain transparent and determinable obligations of its states' parties, there is established a common legal baseline of expectations as to the quality of regulatory predictability that investors and host states could rightfully anticipate during the long-term life of a covered investment. This is a very functionalist view, and it is entirely dependent, indeed, on the transparency and the quality of that regulatory baseline. But as I will show in subsequent, um, in the next few sections of this discussion, 
that particular regulatory baseline is not often sacrosanct. It is also not purely determinable because there has to be some space to enable a state to adapt its own regulatory baseline to respond to ongoing threats, particularly to human security and human rights faced by its own civilian population. While one can say, therefore, that international investment agreements may, to a certain extent, operate as risk management tools for investment, where investment or political risk insurance depends on whether or not developing states concluded an international investment agreement, this is not entirely conclusive or perfectly depict... Uh, it does not perfectly depict or capture the situation. In this instance, when we think about why foreign investors may want to invest in a jurisdiction, some foreign investors may want to invest in jurisdictions that have much lower substantive standards simply because they have a higher tolerance or level of risk. So it's not a guarantee that just because states are willing to offer the predictability supposedly offered by uh, an international investment agreement, that necessarily that incentive alone will be the safeguard against investors who may commit morally hazardous acts or, in a certain case, be a guarantee that the investor will indeed invest in that host state. Those are the normative and the functionalist perspectives that are pervasive in international investment law. And yet those premises have not yet been seriously interrogated, particularly from the human rights standpoint. Proceeding now to why the International Covenant on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights, a human rights treaty, may have applicability to host states as well as the home states of investors insofar as their public policy decisions in international investment law are concerned. In the first place, states' parties to the, con to the covenant are bound to continue discharging their duties to respect, protect, and fulfill economic, social, cultural rights, whether they act as host states to foreign investment or as home states, regulating the conduct of their nationals who invest in countries abroad. The mechanisms for states to discharge their duties under the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights can thus exist at the treaty level by the quality of the investment treaty standards and mechanisms that are created in these investment treaties, or they can occur at the investment contract level through the nature of the contract clauses that are used to regulate foreign investment under the particular domestic law of the, home, of the host state of investment. Now, while investment treaties are concluded between states who may each and reciprocally act as host states to investment or home states of investors, in actual investment treaty practices, it does not appear that there are responsibilities that are directly imposed upon investors as nationals of home states or any counterpart duty imposed on the home states of the investor other than possibly some informational duties involving investment promotion. There are some recent innovations, particularly from the Model Bilateral Investment Treaty of the South African Development Community, also from the CETA, from the Canada-EU Trade Agreement, but also from some more recent bilateral investment treaties insofar as providing for investor 
responsibilities or investor obligations and home state responsibilities. But to a large extent, the Balkan body of investment treaty law, as we have it, does not impose that investor obligation or responsibility, but rather turns them purely into beneficiaries of the investment treaty protections provided or guaranteed or agreed upon by the home state and the host state. Knowing that gap, this does not mean that the home state of the investor has very little to do by way of implementing the covenant and economic social cultural rights. In the first place, a party to the covenant has the duty to domestically legislate and regulate to ensure the extraterritorial effect of the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights on the conduct of corporate activities abroad, even specifically to require that these corporations that are registered in the home states of these countries to internalize and adopt standards that are premised on the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights, as well as other related human rights treaty obligations of the state. There have been proposals further to modify international investment agreements to regulate this conduct specifically by building in investor obligations and home state obligations in the design of what is the latest wave of international investment agreements. Some of these proposals include directly incorporating binding guidelines, standards, or verifiable benchmarks for human rights compliance, um, by, by multinational enterprises, such as the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises or the UN Global Compact. There's also a pending business and human rights treaty that tries to reinforce the notion of the extraterritorial duties of states with respect to regulating the conduct of, their, of legal persons that are registered in their jurisdiction. Uh, model Bilateral investment treaties, such as those from Norway, was the first, actually, the first uh, draft Norwegian model bilateral investment treaty in 2007, even then attempted to introduce the concept of investor obligations and home state obligations, although this has not become the predominant practice as of the current um, practices in innovating and designing international investment agreements. To this date, the notion of investor obligations, direct investor obligations, remains highly contested. And thus, if we are looking at how to situate economic, social, cultural rights, one must look at it primarily from the current prevalent design of investment treaties that do not have those direct obligations. This is why I focus on the regulatory freedom of a state and how the regulatory freedom of a state as encapsulated in the investment treaty itself can be the basis to incorporate, embed, and internalize economic, social, and cultural rights. How do we do this? There are various substantive provisions in investment treaties on states' regulatory freedom that protect states' regulatory freedom. Both home states and host states who are parties to the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights can apply their duties to protect, respect, and fulfill covenant rights when determining the reasonableness of the exercise of this regular regulatory freedom as seen in various clauses. For example, first, 
the in accordance with host state law clauses. These are clauses that define investment that are covered by an investment treaty strictly in accordance with host state law. If host state law were indeed interpreted as incorporating the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights, the human rights treaty obligations of a state, then readily, even at the outset of determining whether an investment merits the protection and the benefits of an investor state, um, of the investor state arbitration process, the fundamental prerequisite is that that investment must already be compliant with international human rights law, particularly economic, social, cultural rights. A second type of clause includes the stabilization clauses. These are clauses in investment treaties that require freezing of certain aspects of the regulatory framework that are inherent or in crucially important to the host state. If the host state were itself to identify that economic, social, cultural rights and related international human rights law were so intrinsic as part of the regulatory framework, then that itself could also be protected under the stabilization clause in an investment treaty. Another type of provision are exceptions clauses or measures not precluded clauses that may excuse host state conduct from liability or in certain circumstances result in outright in mitigation or outright exculpation from liability to investors. Depending on how these exceptions clauses are framed, if they are framed with sensitivity to the prerogative of the state, particularly its regulatory freedom to enact public policy to vindicate its human rights obligations, especially economic, social, cultural rights to its, of its civilian population, that may also be a basis for the internalization of human rights law as part of the applicable law that governs the regulatory of freedom of a state within the parameters of an investment agreement. A fourth kind of clause, as I said earlier, are similar investment definition clauses or similar treaty applicability provisions that do recognize that in determining whether or not specific sections of a treaty, whether expropriation, transfers, or protections um, with respect to currency are applicable, whether or not those substantive provisions are applicable, some models of investment treaties permit variances as to the applicability of these treaties when a state reserves its right to regulate and thus render those particular protections inapplicable when the state's right to regulate for public policy is invoked by the host state. Again, there's also a fifth kind of clause. There are also financial crises provisions, emergency provisions, balance of payments provisions within investment treaties that even of themselves recognize that in these particular circumstances, economic circumstances that require immediate responses on the part of states to meet these exigencies, especially given their impacts to the human rights of their civilian populations, there is a recognition that in that space of regulatory freedom, states, host states, should not, as for the most part, be held liable or automatically liable to investors or when there is particular necessity as depending on how it's defined in the particular provision. 
There are, however, a proliferation of many, many models on these kinds of clauses, and the legal consequences that attach to these provisions are by no means uniform. So apart from the substantive provisions or standards in investment treaties that I discussed earlier, where the regulatory freedom of a state is protected, and in which the duties of a state in relation to respecting, protecting, and fulfilling economic, social, and cultural rights could be vindicated through interpretation of that regulatory freedom that is already protected within the parameters of an investment treaty, there may also be procedural or structural provisions on the regulatory freedom of a state where the economic, social, cultural rights of uh, duties, rather, to protect, respect, and fulfill economic, social, cultural rights may operate with respect to the state's regulatory freedom. States today are increasingly trying to address the issue of their regulatory freedom to pursue public interest or human rights concerns through a variety of structural approaches in their investment treaties, such as, first, ad hoc joint decision mechanisms, second, treaty-based institutional commissions, third, interstate consultative mechanisms, fourth, customizations and adaptations of the investor-state dispute settlement mechanisms, such as possibly considering appellate, mechan appellate mechanisms to review arbitral awards, or even the possibility of removing the investor-state dispute settlement mechanism altogether. I will briefly turn to each of these examples to illustrate how economic, social, cultural rights could be interpreted in line with the state's regulatory freedom on these issues. Turning to the first device, the ad hoc joint decision mechanism. This is a relatively recent device in the newer generation of investment treaties, and they are utilized in the future to enable states to control the interpretation of an investment treaty so that states could indeed retain sufficient policy flexibility to respond to domestic public interest and regulatory objectives especially those arising from duties involving the protection, respect, and fulfillment of economic, social, cultural rights. This may be seen from various examples. Article 30, 30 paragraph 3 of the United States Model BIT, where states' parties can reserve to the right to issue a joint decision declaring their interpretation of any provision of the investment treaty or any investment treaty standards, such as the much-contested, ambiguous, fair, fair and equitable treatment standard. Or even in other treaties, such as the 2005 United States-Uruguay Bilateral Investment Treaty, the 2008 United States-Rwanda Bilateral Investment Treaty, Article 29, Paragraph 2 of the 2007 India-Mexico Investment Treaty, the 2009 Canada-Czech Bilateral Investment Treaty, and even Chapter 11, or Article 27, of the 2010 ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, Australia, and New Zealand Free Trade Agreement. Now, while these mechanisms openly permit states' parties to the investment treaty to agree on an interpretation of provisions that would prevail over that of any arbitral tribunal decision, they problematically still do not refer to international law as the party's guiding principles when they decide on future agreed interpretation of the investment treaty. 
Neither do they prefer or can still contain any internal control or guidance for the state's parties when their interpretation frontally con- collides with that of an arbitral tribunal. Um, and yet there's not yet been an occasion to resolve this potential jurisdictional um, tension. However, this is a space. Depending on how states use the ad hoc joint decision mechanism, this could be the space for preserving regulatory freedom consistent with international human rights law, specifically the duties of states to respect and protect and fulfill economic, social, cultural rights. The second example is the treaty-based institutional commission or consultative bodies. These pose less a danger of undue interference with the specific jurisdictional competences of arbitral tribunals in investor state disputes. While the interpretations of treaty-based commissions are generally binding on arbitral tribunals, they are nevertheless issued usually with a more institutional view of the interpretation's consequences for the future implementation, oversight, and interpretation or supervision of the investment treaty. The treaty-based institutional commission has the advantage of entrenching regular consultations and dialogue between states' parties to the investment treaty. And thus, if such a commission were to do this with states periodically and regularly dialoguing on regulatory freedom and the exercise of the right to regulate consistent with their obligations under international human rights law, it could be entirely possible that this device could also be used as a mechanism that could ensure that the long-term interpretation, supervision, and monitoring of an investment treaty adheres to that understanding of regulatory freedom that is based on a state's fundamental duties and international human rights. To date, the only glaring example of a treaty-based institutional commission which is soon to be defunct, is the North American Free Trade Area, uh, NAFTA Free Trade Commission, which was initially set up um, to elaborate on and resolve issues regarding interpretation or application. To this date, however, there has not been further devices that innovate and show how these treaty uh, interpretation commissions could potentially, treaty-based institutional commissions or consultative bodies, could entrench human rights-sensitive interpretations of an international investment treaty. A third aspect, which is, or a third possibility or space of regulatory freedom where human rights law could also potentially figure, is in the is in the customization, the ongoing process of customization, or in some cases, even the outright removal of the investor state dispute settlement clause. Now, there have been many arguments marshaled, and even in the pending discussions over reform of the investor state dispute settlement mechanism, the notion of an appeal or an appellate procedure to review arbitral awards has been repeatedly brought up, not just as a matter of access to justice, but precisely to enable uh, committees or the appellate mechanism to review how a state's regulatory freedom has been appreciated by an arbitral tribunal, especially when a state in host state invokes powerful arguments based on international human rights treaty obligations. To this extent, 
this is still nascent. The notion of customizing investor state arbitration is still quite nascent. And so much of this depends on whether or not states' parties to the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights do indeed critically examine their investment treaties with respect to the actual space of regulatory freedom that's built in these treaties, sufficient to enable them to meet their obligations specifically for economic, social, cultural rights protection. These are spaces, but so much in the end ultimately turns on the actual linguistic elasticity of the investment treaty provision that recognizes states' regulatory freedoms. So up to this point, I've discussed several devices with respect to the treaty level, where you could have openings for economic, social, cultural rights to be read into the regulatory freedom of states, first in substantive standards, as I discussed earlier, in different kinds of clauses that recognize spaces for regulatory freedom, and as I've just discussed now, procedural mechanisms where regulatory freedom is also recognized in a manner that potentially or could have possible prospects for recognizing international human rights law as pertinently the basis and the anchor and the premise for that regulatory freedom. Let me turn now to the other aspect of governing foreign investment, which is at the level of contract. We have, up to this point, been looking at investment treaty law, primarily as the situs of innovation for economic, social, cultural rights. Let me now turn to the possible contextual use of the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights when it comes to due diligence processes and investment contracts. The alternative here is that the covenant could be contextually used to inform the content of the due diligence process that the host state of the foreign investment sets for foreign investment operating in its country. When the state's economic, social, cultural rights obligations and its status of compliance with these obligations is purposely built into the regulatory due diligence process that governs and regulates the foreign investment, there is a greater possibility of accuracy when truly assessing the likely political risks of an investment. And in fact, these notion of basic due, diligences, due diligence processes in foreign investment usually in, the, in its earliest iterations, just involve the examination of commercial and administrative laws, regulations, and procedures that tend to affect an investment. In some instances, it also involves country diligence or some notion of what the regulatory system is like and what the likely um, risks are that would materialize against an investment. However, there is nothing that truly bars a state that is a party to the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights. In fact, as a state party, they are encouraged. And the Committee on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights has stressed this in general comment number 24, that states that are host states to investment should include in their own international human rights commitments when designing the due diligence review process to be conducted with the, by the investor. While it might seem at first glance that a state's human rights commitments might appear tangential, say, to a foreign investment involving the construction of an, in, involving an infrastructure project, 
The effect of these competing commitments by the state is to create precisely a degree of policy uncertainty that should be expected from the host state that should thus be already significant, even from the standpoint of the investor's own regulatory risk analysis. The fact that states still don't do this is only reflective of the ongoing divide that states see insofar as their human rights obligations are concerned within the sphere of economic regulation. But there is no hard and fast prohibition in international law from building that kind of due diligence process into the regulation of foreign investment. So thus, uh, it may be reasonable to expect, especially if the covenant on economic social cultural rights or the commitments of a state as a party to economic social cultural rights are built into, and especially their social protection obligations, are built into the due diligence process, it becomes entirely reasonable then for an investor to expect that if a host state fails to meet its minimum core obligations under the covenant on economic social cultural rights during a period of extreme economic crises or exigencies from natural disasters, some of these obligations involving health, involving an adequate standard of living, food security, rights to water, among education, among others, it would thus become reasonable if in the due diligence process that was established at the outset that the state had these commitments, it's entirely reasonable that an investor should be able to foresee and expect that the state would indeed prioritize those obligations over obligations, monetary obligations owed to investors. To that extent, if we reconceptualize the notion of risk and recognize that host states have the signal opportunity to define that risk at the outset when they decide or design the due diligence process, that is possibly the most impactful means by which you could alter the expectations of investors in a manner that already incorporates the obligations of a state under international human rights law. Continuing with the notion of due diligence, then necessarily if we begin to relax and host states begin to relax their understanding and design of due diligence for foreign investment in a manner that fully encapsulates the policy uncertainty risks, the regulatory risks from a state meeting its commitments under economic, social, cultural rights at the highest level of priority, then the nature of impact assessments for foreign investment necessarily will change. To date in the international system, we are already uh, encountering much of scholarly as well as policy work that focuses on human rights impact assessments, not just environmental impact assessments or labor displacement assessments, but human rights impact assessments that are linked to companies' regulatory risk assessments. This has especially been advocated by the Special Rapporteur on, foreign, on the Right to Food in particularly when there are explicit references in the due diligence process to internationally recognized human rights. The guiding principles on business and human rights further elaborated on the contours of human rights due diligence that business enterprises, including foreign investors, must take into account. The pending draft business and human rights treaty also elaborates on the possible uh, human rights due diligence process that is sensitive to ensuring 
that investors form expectations with a careful understanding of states' ongoing obligations to meet their economic, social, and cultural rights obligations. Therefore, it's entirely within the preserve of host states to decide the quality and nature of investment treaty protection using that particular angle of regulatory freedom, whether at the treaty level or at the contract level, to ensure that part of the expectations of regulatory risk that investors form are well within or encapsulate the actual economic, social, cultural rights obligations and the priorities for those obligations by home states. If home states, or rather host states, are careful about the design of their regulatory framework, the investment law that governs through treaties as well as through contracts, there is no way why economic, social, cultural rights cannot be respected, protected, and fulfilled in the context of foreign investment. The last aspect, which is often the most overwritten aspect um, of possibly building in economic, social, cultural rights, is where so much of the work of international lawyers have gone to these days. It is using economic, social, cultural rights or human rights law, other human rights law, as possible interpretive devices for the treaty interpretation of investment treaties. To a certain extent, there are some openings within the design of investment treaties that do purposely cross-reference other treaty obligations involving social protection, human rights, or public policy objectives. And thus, the interpretation of the treaty necessarily requires sensitivity to these human rights obligations. We see this in the 2002 Austria-Malta Bilateral Investment Treaty, which specifically provides that the application of the European Convention on Human Rights shall not be excluded by that investment treaty. Another example is that 1998 Japan-Pakistan Bilateral Investment Treaty, which prohibits the interpretation of this treaty in a way that would derogate from other agreements, such as intellectual property agreements, um, where parties also have obligations. To, with respect to the 2004 Belgium-Luxembourg Economic Union-Serbia and Montenegro Bilateral Investment Treaty, there is also an affirmation in Article 5 therein that states' commitments under international environmental agreements will remain and will be respected by the parties, notwithstanding the investment treaty protections that are included in that treaty. Thus, it can be directly provided for within the design of the treaty itself. However, the interpretation is not itself a straightforward issue. To this date, there is no live jurisprudence or there's no apropos jurisprudence that already interprets these provisions in investment treaties that cross-reference other human rights or public policy provisions in other investment treaties. While we expect that the interpretation will continue alongside Article 31 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, to the extent that human rights law is treated as a relevant rule of international law within the purview of Article 31.3c of the Vienna Convention, there is still not a preponderant resort or acceptance of this view. Although this has been argued, the liberal use of 
Article 313C, the relevant rules of international law, have been admitted by some arbitral tribunals, such as in Mikula and Others versus Romania, the Saluka Investments versus Czech Republic arbitral tribunals, to expand the range of applicable law. But this has not precisely been done to expand the range of applicable law to include human rights law. Thus, in the Bywater Gulf versus Tanzania um, arbitral dispute, there was amicus curiae that argued for a human rights-sensitive interpretation of the bilateral investment treaty in that case, stating that human rights and sustainable development issues are factors that condition the nature and extent of investors' obligations. But the tribunal was not receptive. It simply took the observation into consideration of the factual assessment of the investors' acts and, and omissions, not with respect to the specific interpretation of standards of the bilateral investment treaty. So to this extent, resorting to the interpretive device is not a complete guarantee of success. It is to extend to the extent as maintained by an arbitral tribunal in Bershader versus Russian Federation, resort to relevant rules of international law applicable to the relations between parties should be made only when the terms of the treaty are unclear or require interpretation or supplementation. Another tribunal in the Azurics, the Azurics Ad Hoc Annulment Committee emphasized that while it accepted that the treaty may need to be interpreted against relevant rules of international law, such as customary international law. The committee was reticent and said that unless, even drew the line saying that unless norms of use cogents were allowed, were involved, the treaty um, is capable itself of modifying those rules of customary international law, which is why only treaty law should prevail. So to that extent, there's no predictability in the preponderance of jurisprudence thus far, insofar as using economic, social, cultural rights as a direct interpretive device according to the standards of investment agreements. My final proposal, and uh, which has been a proposal I've examined from the nature of reparations in investor state arbitration, is to use the covenant in economic, social, cultural rights as the equitable basis to temper, mitigate, if not drastically reduce the quantum of compensation. I will discuss this in turn. The final way that economic, social, cultural rights obligations under the covenant can be used as an interpretive device to the investment treaty would be to accept that a host state's good faith compliance with its duties and obligations under the covenant could also be an equitable basis for arbitral tribunals to temper, mitigate, reduce the nature and extent of compensation awarded to investors and exacted from such states, especially in cases where the investment treaty itself does not provide for compensation, as may be seen in non-expropriation breaches of investment treaties. To this extent, when we look at resorting to the fair market value standard for determining compensation in non-expropriation breaches of investment treaty standards, or rather breaches of non-expropriation standards and in investment treaties, so much of this is pure arbitral discretion. As noted by other scholars, the customary rule of full compensation 
is of a very is of a very general nature, and it does not offer a conceptual framework for the recovery of damages that would be comparable in specificity to the value approach that is generally applicable in expropriation cases. Rather, it simply provides a general principle according to which any loss suffered and established with appropriate and adequate proof must be compensated in full. This, this generality is what provides tribunals with pr- flexibility to determine the precise methodology for is- assessing the exact monetary amount of damages in a given case. Knowing this, let's examine what the legal basis is for awarding compensation for non-expropriation breaches of an investment treaty. Ultimately, the legal basis is the law of compensation under the general law of international responsibility as codified under Article 36 of the ILC Articles on State Responsibility. If we recall, that same Article 36 provides that this form of compensation is not supposed to be intended to be, impu- to be punitive, exemplary, or expressive, and it even imposes the condition that this compensation must be equitably determined from the perspective of both the injuring party and the injured party. The International Law Commission report said in its commentary that as to the appropriate heads of compensable damage and the principles of assessment to be applied in quantification, These will vary depending upon the content of particular primary obligations, an evaluation of the the respective behavior of the parties, and more generally, a concern to reach an equitable and acceptable outcome. Following this rule under Article 36 of the Articles of State Responsibility, it was thus not surprising that the 2012 judgment of the International Court of Justice in the case of Amado Sadio Diallo Guinea versus the the Democratic Republic of Congo in its compensation judgment, which thus far is the only decision and compensation where there has been a detailed reasoning on the part of the court, the compensation claim was ultimately whittled down by the court from a claim of over $11 million to simply an award of about $90,000. This was done because it was also an opportunity not just for the court to emphasize that every head of damage had to be established with appropriate evidence, but also that the quantification of compensation for non-material injury does rest on equitable considerations. In light of practices even of the Human Rights Committee, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, arbitral tribunals and regional human rights courts, such as the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Now, if we apply this approach by the International Court of Justice to the particular circumstances of an investor asserting non-material injuries arising from breach of investment treaty standards that do not involve expropriation, such as, for example, the fair and equitable treatment standard or the frequent permutation of the violation of the investor's legitimate expectations, whatever that means according to the given dispute, then a host state's good faith compliance with the covenant on economic, social, cultural rights must be taken at the very least by the arbitral tribunal also as a substantial equitable basis 
to prevent awarding compensation levels to the investor at the full fair market value ordinarily imposed by the investment treaty for direct or indirect expropriations. If the investment treaty is itself silent on the matter of compensation for breaches of non-expropriation treaty standards in investment treaty, it is not appropriate or consistent with the equitable process of determining compensation under Article 36, the general law of international responsibility. It is not appropriate for the arbitral tribunal to summarily import the same just compensation level of full fair market value that is primarily intended for cases of direct or indirect expropriation. Now, knowing this, of course, it, does, it should also be emphasized that Article 36 does not give a scientific process for determining levels of compensation. To this extent, arbitral tribunals will privilege factual and economic assumptions and will determine and construct and make judgment calls that are unique to their appreciation of the facts of the case. But in this aspect, notwithstanding that while there may be many constructions of the loss of value, the extensive scope of the economic, social, cultural rights obligations of the state means that it could potentially figure in just about any investment. If you think about it, the covenant provides for the right to work, to just and favorable conditions of work, trade unions, uh, membership in trade unions, social security, the right to an adequate standard of living, the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical health, cultural life, among many others. The obligation of the state to respect, protect, and fulfill these rights would necessarily have to differentiate between potential human rights impacts of a foreign direct investment and financial investments that are traded in the secondary markets. The regulatory risks associated with different types of investments would then have to be assessed in light of the possible impact on the state's continuing compliance with the covenant. But this is not any basis to say that compensation in and of itself cannot be more equitably tempered when host states invoke in good faith their own compliance with duties owed to their populations under economic, social, and cultural rights. To conclude, economic, social, cultural rights can be mediated into investment law through a reconceptualization of the regulatory freedom of states. As I have demonstrated from the treaty level, the contract level, as well as in the design of the due diligence process, particularly as well as the interpretation of investment treaty standards, numerous mechanisms already exist for states to reconceptualize the regulatory framework that governs foreign investment and purposely to internalize economic, social, cultural rights in the assessment of regulatory risks, in the tempering of compensation awarded to investors, and also in the very design of investment treaties, contract processes, as well as due diligence and investor obligations in any of these instruments that regulate the conduct of foreign investment.